This morning I'll be reading from Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 through 22. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Probably one of the greatest threats to us is a danger that's not detected. You know, that's, it's dangerous to not know what is threatening you. It was in 1937, one of the greatest tragedies in this country, uh, at a school in uh, New London, Texas. There was a gas leak. Natural gas, as you know, is colorless and odorless. And there was a gas leak. It was undetected. And there was an explosion, and 295 people died, children and teachers. Uh, it wasn't known. It wasn't detected. Um, they added, the industry responded to that by adding a chemical substance so as to create a smell. So now if you turn on a gas burner or your, or your propane tank and your flame goes out on your grill, you smell it. It's like rotten eggs. That was added so that people would be alerted, there is danger here. Because when it's not detected, that is when it's most dangerous. Well, when you speak about the nature of envy, this the second of the seven deadly sins, uh, there is a danger to it that's undetected. It's called the lost sin because it's so pervasive, but nobody sees it. Nobody understands it. Nobody detects it anymore. But Proverbs does, and Proverbs makes this warning about envy. Now remember, we're finishing up in the book of Proverbs. We've done the seven-week study. Uh, Proverbs is a book about, it's kind of putting theology in street clothes. Here's how you live skillfully in this world. Here's how you navigate a complicated and broken world in a way that you'll be satisfied at the end. Proverbs presumes you believe in God. And it presumes that there is a way to live in his world, though broken, in a way that will yield to joy. And so that's what Proverbs is trying to give us. And Proverbs speaks to us about the nature of envy. So along with the passage that Sarah read, let me read one more to you. Chapter 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Who can stand before envy? In other words, think about it. Listen to it. Wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but they don't hold a candle to envy. They don't hold a candle. Traditionally, envy was the second worst sin following pride, the most prevalent of sins. It's known as a cold sin because it's a sin of the spirit. It's not a sin of the flesh. A sin of the flesh, they're the warm sins, right? They're the sins that you can see, lust or gluttony or drunkenness or anger you can see those <clears throat> but the sins that are cold the sins of the spirit those are the respectable sins you don't see those and so proverbs makes this warning to us so what we find here is we want to draw from the wisdom of god's word there's three questions i have where do we see it how do we how do we see what it is this envy and then what's the cost what's the cost if you don't if you don't heed the words that you hear today, what will be the cost that you may face? 
and then ultimately, how do we overcome it? We've kind of followed the same template throughout the whole series here. So what does it look like? Or how would, I, how would I identify it? So that's the first thing. Second thing will be cost. Third will be how to overcome. So envy, how do I see it? Well, what is envy? Well, let me tell you two things it's not. Envy is not simply desire. You know, to desire things may be a good thing. You may desire to live in the way that a godly man or woman has lived before you, and, and you, you want to follow in their footsteps. Well, that's not envy. That's just admiration. Envy also isn't wanting something nicer. You know, if you drive a car that's unreliable and you see a nice car that looks reliable to one of reliable cars, not a, it's not a bad thing. No, envy is different. Envy is simply this. Envy is when I have a lack that is part of someone else's life and I am displeased over not having it. So what envy is, is it's a desire for something I don't have but someone else does. It's a good, and I want it, and there's displeasure. It's a little different than jealousy. Jealousy is fear of losing what I do have. Envy is wanting what I don't have. It's on the opposite side. Uh, you may envy a person's personality or their gifts or their possessions, the things that they own. You don't have it. They have it. It's a good thing that they have, and you want it so bad that there's sorrow, there's displeasure, there's maybe even anger. You want that so bad. You need that so bad. So a couple theologians over the ages, Thomas Aquinas says, it's the sorrow over another's good. So someone else has a good that you don't have, and you're sorrowful that you don't have it. Or Dorothy Sayers, she wrote an essay on envy. It's classic. The sin which hates to see other men happy. Or Frederick Buechner, the consuming, desire to everyone, to, the consuming desire to have everyone as miserable and unsuccessful as you. This is the nature of envy. You see it in the Bible. You see Cain, his face falls before Abel's sacrifice being accepted. You see it from King Saul to King David when he receives the applause of the people. You see it in the Pharisees to Jesus. There's this envy. They don't have what they want. Another has it, and they're sorrowful and angry over it. Now, where does it kind of evidence itself in our lives? How will we see it? Well, you can see it in the sin of comparison. You know, that, that you look at other people and you compare yourself, who you are and what you have with other people. They may be, they may be smarter. They may be thinner. They may be prettier. They may be more successful. They may have better friendships. It, it's this death by comparison. You kind of see it when you say things, well, I try as hard as they do. Well, why shouldn't I have it if they have it? You, you, you see this comparison that we look around and we're not looking at what we do have, we're looking at what we don't have and we're looking at what other people have. And then there's that sorrow, that displeasure. Why can't I have that? I deserve that. Now, of course, our, our internet and our social media platforms have really put this thing in, on kind of rocket fuel. So Facebook term called Facebook Envy, two German universities did a survey, and one out of three people have increased dissatisfaction, loneliness, frustration, anger over using the media site. The primary trigger they found was vacation photos followed by social interactions such as comparing one's quantity of birthday wishes or status likes to those of others. They found that Facebook affects Different demographics. Women are more likely to envy the physical attractiveness of others. 
People in the mid-30s were more likely to envy family members. But regardless, there was a relationship between the use of Facebook and this increased dissatisfaction in life. Now, hear me clearly. This isn't Facebook's issue. This is our heart issue. A study was done by the UK Royal Society of Public Health, and they found that Instagram was the most dangerous social platform for those in their teens. Because Instagram and Snapchat, they have produced an increase um, in sleep loss, in body image issues, and in fear of missing out, as well as increased anxiety. It's the comparison. It's they have, or seem to have, or, or, or purport to have what I want. And then I face the discouragement, the disillusionment, and the disappointment. But it's not just in comparison that we see envy creep up in our souls. It's also in complaining and criticism. If one of your friends gets a new job, or one of your friends gets a new relationship, and, and then you begin to find yourself being critical of them, being critical of what they're doing with their gifts, or, being, or complaining about how they're using what they have, or, or perhaps you don't complain about what they're doing with their gifts, but maybe you take another part of their life that is not so successful and begin to criticize them. Well, yeah, it may be a successful business, but look at his marriage. It's a dumpster fire. Or, or yeah, they may, they, may be, they may have that well, but look at their parenting. Their parenting's lousy. You begin to criticize those parts of their lives that aren't doing well. This is evidencing to us this kind of envy. Cornelius Plantiga, theologian, that used to teach at Calvin College, said, Envy will incite us to soil their reputation, minimize their virtues, question their motives, and challenge their integrity. We'll go after people that we're envious of. That's evidence to us. We ought to be asking, why am I doing this? What am I envying? A, a, a third evidence, if you will, of trying to find what this thing looks like, it's in our ingratitude. When a friend of yours receives something good, are you happy for them? Are, are, are you glad? Are you thanking God with them? Or, or, or do you kind of act sorrowful? When they're rejoicing, you're sorrowful. When they're sorrowful, you're kind of happy. And that was the passage that was read today, 2417. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he or she stumbles. So you see these evidences in comparison and complaining and ingratitude. To what degree do you see envy in your soul? Now, it kind of begs the question that I haven't answered yet, which is, where does it all come from? I mean, I mean what's ultimately the source for me to identify what this thing looks like? And I'd simply say this. It's the things that you value. It's the things that you love. That's going to be where you envy. In other words, if you really value financial security, you're going to tend to envy those who are wealthy. If you really value body image, you're going to tend to envy those that are thinner and prettier. If you really value success in the business world and, and, and going up the corporate ladder, then you're going to envy those who begin to move past you. If you really value being used of God, then you're going to tend to envy those with greater gifts that you have. Or maybe they're used more frequently by God or more powerfully. It happens to all of us. I mean, every age and stage, it happens to the young. The, the young, they may be assessing things on a more physical level. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're taller, they're smarter, they're thinner, they've got nicer clothes. 
It happens to the singles. One single all of a sudden develops a relationship, and, and now they're not single anymore. You can envy that, or a new job. The marrieds, right? You can look at the spouse of, of your friend, and, well, he works hard, and he does the honeydew list, and my husband can't change the light bulb, or, or you know, his wife is always dressed to the nines, and she's attractive, and she's sure. It can happen in marriage. It can happen in ministry. You know, this church is exploding with growth. Mine's imploding. This church, his pastor, is known by people that aren't even members, and the members of my church don't even recognize me. I mean, it can happen in ministry. It can happen in academia. You know, they get more book contracts. They get more likes or following on their blog posts. So, so it happens. So where is it in you? With whom do you envy? Or over what do you envy most? Uh, when, how easy is it for you to rejoice with those around you who are doing well? Or how often do you kind of murmur when somebody close to you has a benefit or they have something good come in their lives? How often do you say, well, it should be me. I work harder than them. I read my Bible more than them. How often does that happen? Because we want to detect this danger. To not detect the danger is to really be in danger. And what is this danger anyways? I mean, what's the danger of envy? You may say, hey, it's a little heart thing for me. It's no big deal. Well, I think it is a big deal. Uh, the danger is simply this. It'll steal your joy. In Proverbs 14, 30, he says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Uh, do you see the connection here? The posture of your heart regarding envy is going to have a physical outworking in your life. It's going to steal your joy. It's going to dehumanize you. It's going to decreate you. And Jonathan Edwards talks about envy being like a caterpillar. It, it gets on its host and just consumes it until it's destroyed. That's what envy does. Envy is like a, an emotional starvation. I'm always wanting, 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 wanting. I'm never enjoying what I have. You know, he, he says, a tranquil heart, a peaceful heart, a restful heart gives life to the flesh, but envy rots the bones. It's gonna, you're going to miss all that you do have because you're pining away and you're longing. In fact, that's what the Greek word envy means. It's a wasting away. It's like the decaying of an old stump. It doesn't, doesn't get destroyed right away, but over time it just begins to decay and crack and ends up nothing. So, so it steals our joy. And not only that, it, it leads to a host of other sins, by the way. You know, those that are envy, you're going to... Let's say you envy over clothing. You're going to spend more money than you should getting into debt. Or, or you're going to envy someone's, you know, sexual relationship so it moves you into adultery. Your envy can lead you to hatred or even murder, at least murder of the heart, because you hate their success and they've gone over you so often their footprints are on your head. And so you, you, you hate them for that. So envy does lead to other sins. It robs our joy and it draws us down. But it also divides relationships. I mean, think about the relationships you have with people. When success comes into their world or God's grace comes into their world, how do you respond? It's, it's hard to be intimate. Maybe you're a couple, you're trying to get pregnant. You can't. And your friend just gets pregnant. They just seem to bump into each other and to get pregnant. And that frustrates you. Or perhaps... You're single, you want a relationship, and all your friends are finding, and you're not. And, and, and that's, that's hurtful. Or maybe you're, you're always struggling with ill health, but this person eats anything they want, they just live like, you know, like they've got an engine that will never quit. 
You know, all these things will ultimately take away the transparency and the vulnerability that we need to have a deep, lasting friendship. So it tends to divide friends. And here's something interesting about envy. Envy tends to occur with those with whom you're closest. We don't tend to envy those on the television or those in the, in the movies or the pro athletes. We don't tend not to envy them. We envy those closest to us. And those with whom we have the most intimate relationships, envy just kind of creates a gap. It creates a chasm. It creates distrust. It creates competition, rivalry, dissension, complaint and criticism. It ruins our friendships, which give, they're meant to give so much life to us. And then ultimately, it, it, it really kills any love for God. Because when you envy, you're blind to what God's goodness has done for you. When you're always envying, you don't see all that God has been to you. You hold God in contempt. Why can't you give me the gifts you've given to them? You have all power. You have all glory. And, and it's the same sin do you see in the garden. You know, so, so pride moved Adam and Eve to want to be like God, but it was envy. It was envy that wanted what they didn't have. Envy drove them. I want what I can't have, and, I want, and I'll get it the way I need to get it. And so envy, is the f it's really right there in the garden. It's the first sin. It's questioning the goodness of God. It, it's, it's leaving doubt. Is God really good? Because I think I really need this. He hasn't given this to me. So instead of submitting ourselves to trusting that God knows what's best for us, we supplant God and we say, no, we know what's best, and he has given to us, so he's not good. And so it ruins our relationship with God. Do you see this? I mean, think about envy. I mean, some of the questions are rhetorical, but they're easy to answer. I mean, has envy benefited you in any way? Has envy benefited your relationships in any way? Has it deepened any friendship you have? Has envy drawn you into a deeper love for God? You know, the, the, the weird thing about envy and, and the irony of the whole thing is most temptations to sin, it, it's like a hook with bait on it. I mean, lust or gluttony or drunkenness. There is some pleasure in that, at least initially. And not long term, for sure, but there is at least a temptation to pleasure. I want to eat what I want to eat. There's pleasure in that. But there's no bait on the hook of envy. It's the one sin that ruins its perpetrator without any pleasure. It, it just it doesn't bring, it takes everything and gives nothing. So, so the envy is a threat to your personal joy, to your relationships, and ultimately to your walk with God. So how do we overcome this monster? In fact, we call it, right, the green monster. It's often called the green-eyed monster. Do you realize that came um, from uh, Shakespeare in his play uh, Merchant of Venice? He called it, first time ever used, the green-eyed jealousy. It was an Othello written in 1604 where he called it the green-eyed monster. And the reason it's green is because that's how that culture would describe being sick. They look green, kind of greenish, that tint in your complexion when you're sick. It makes us sick. That's the danger. So how do we overcome this green-eyed monster? How, how, do we, how do we beat it back? Well, let me, I'm going to give you about six things. I don't want you to do all six. I just want you to pick one or two as it may fit, but I want to kind of speak comprehensively or broadly. Uh, the first thing is, let's at least recognize it. Let's admit it. Let's confess it. 
In other words, let's do the hard work of looking at our own soul and saying, where have you been? What have you been envying? And, and try to find out, what, where is it taking place in my life? Because when we do this kind of investigation, we're going to identify those loves that we have that supplant Christ. So if I find myself rejoicing over the downfall of somebody else, immediately I should say, why am I rejoicing over their downfall? What am I envying in them? What don't I feel God has given to me that I think I need? God, would you forgive me for that? I'm one of those guys, you know, misery loves company, right? If, if I'm down, everybody should be down. And, and, and so why, why do I do that? What is not in God? What am I missing in God that would lead me to feel that way? So, so and you may need to ask people to help you. Here's something bold. You could even confess to the person that you're envious of. You could even say, you know what, I've harbored bitterness to you. I haven't rejoiced with you when you've rejoiced because I've envied you. That'd be bold. I mean, talk about exposing ourselves here. But you're also exposing yourself to God for his grace to help you and heal you in that. So first, recognize it and repent of it. Repentance is a gift of God to us so that we can clear the decks. Uh, secondly, celebrate with them. I mean, when somebody, when you feel that come up, you, you do some comparison, and you see somebody really just got a great job, or they really did have a super vacation, or they, they really have gotten themselves into shape, th then tell them, encourage them. Or, or maybe they're doing something in ministry that's really been effective, and you haven't been as effective. Well, God, I've seen God's grace in your life. Give word to it. Pray for those that you envy. Pray for their success. This is incredibly helpful. That's why we pray for other churches down the road. We're not in competition with them like we've got to be the best church. We want all the churches to do well. We want all of them to walk in unity. And so we pray for them. There's no competition there. You know, I had an aunt on my mother's side, really remarkable lady. Um, she really had a tough life, you know, when you, when you think about marriage and family and kids and health, lost a child and all that. It, it was just a, yeah, a lot of struggles. But my mom would always comment that my aunt was always rejoicing with the good things that my mother was experiencing. Even though she never really saw the same joy that my mother had in her family, she always rejoiced with her. It was incredible. She said, she wants what I have, but she doesn't have it. But she rejoices in me having it. And that's pretty incredible. I mean, that, 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 that takes a spiritual awareness. But, but celebrate these things. Fight the envy by giving glory to God for the good that he's brought to somebody else. And then thirdly, you, you could lament... I mean, we're not spiritual, we're not, you know, the Christian is not a triumphalist. That everything has to, you know, when people say it's all good, it's all good, I'm like, no, it's not all good. I'm just telling you here, it's not all good. It will ultimately be all good, but it's not all good right now. And, and, and it's kind of a buzz light your theology to infinity and beyond. Everything's going to work out great. No, it doesn't always work out great. And we can lament that. God has given us lament in Scripture, the Psalms. More than a third of the psalms are lament, where we just we speak to God. It gives us language to complain to God. Say, God, why aren't you giving me this? Why aren't you know when David says, Why do you stand so far off? How long do I have to appeal to you? So you see in the scripture languages given to us so that we can come to God instead of kind of just settling into a pool of envy towards somebody else. We can run to God as a strong tower, a help. God, would you help me with this? I really want this. 
You're not giving it to me. Can you help me find contentment and peace? Can you help give me rest? Go to God with it. And Jesus invites us. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. I'll give you rest. He's inviting us to come to him with our frustrations over the things that we don't have. Maybe you want legitimate things. You want to be in a relationship. You want to have greater health. You want greater financial security. You want a different job. You want reconciled relationship. Then go to him with it and lament that you don't have those things and ask him for that rest that only he can provide. And fourth, another thing you can do to fight envy is consider the final day. Consider your final day. Uh, we see this in Proverbs 24, 19. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Or in 23, 17, and 18. Let not your heart envy sinners. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. You have a day coming. For the Christian here, you have a day coming where God will reveal himself to you in full measure. You will see Christ, you'll be like him as he is. You have this day. We don't do well valuing things today. The, the, the gifts that we are given by God, we often can look at as more than they are, and we tend to trust and long for them and find our happiness in them. We don't value things very well. And so we tend to love things inordinately. But when you look at the final day, that has a way of balancing how we value things. What do I mean? Oh, let me give you an example. So if you, if you know someone, they've gotten a call from the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, we've discovered a lump, and we have a terminal illness, and you've got six months to live. You know, I go through this just to remind myself of the brevity of life. But when you hear those words, what do you, when you've seen people that have got news like that, what tends to happen to their priorities? There tends to be a bit of a reprioritization, isn't there? I mean, they're not saying, I got to get to the office even earlier Monday to get my job done. No, they, they tend to, what do they do? They say, I, I got to spend more time with family. I got to get right with God. I got to reconcile these relationships with family members that I haven't talked to in a long time. It, their priorities change. Because now there's a day in front of them. There's a final day. The valuation, think about the Titanic. I did a quick review this morning on all the contents on the Titanic. I mean, it's incredible. 40,000 eggs, 75,000 pounds of, of uh, beef, and five grand pianos, and I don't know, 50,000 bottles of port. And it, it was just loaded with stuff that was all necessary and fun. Guess what? Nobody was worried about what was on board when the water started coming in. I mean, there was a quick reprioritization. Now the life rafts are really important and not the, not the beef tenderloin that I wanted. So th there's this prioritization change that takes place when you begin to realize the days are coming to an end. That helps with envy. So when you long for something, think, I may not be longing for that in five years. If I get sick tomorrow, I won't need that anymore. I, I won't need that to be happy because it can't serve me. Fifth would be to fear God. We see this in 23, uh, 17. It says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Now, folks, hang with me here. I want to explain something about the fear of the Lord. I've been trying to touch on it. The fear of the Lord, as I said last week, it's not fright. It's not scared. 
To fear the Lord is to recognize that he's both sovereignly powerful and he's sovereignly good. Now, the biggest marker in the Old Testament of God's power and mercy is seen in the Exodus. That's kind of the greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament. God draws a people who are unworthy because he's so merciful, he draws them out of slavery in Egypt and he saves them for himself. He exercises great power in destroying the nation of Egypt and he brings forth a people not deserving his mercy. That's a picture and that's what caused people to fear God. To fear God, Charles Bridges, an Anglican bishop of the 19th century, said, it's like reverent affection. I'm reverent of God because of his power. But I have affections for God because he's good. I have a love for God. There's a a right fear, but there's a love for him because he's good. Well, that story in the Old Testament, of course, is paralleled in the New Testament. A greater exodus took place in the New Testament. God sent a son. Now, it was the blood of the lamb that caused the angel of death to pass over and to begin this exodus out. It was the blood of another lamb that now has drawn us out of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin. So God has sent a son to bear a curse, to bear our sin, that we might be reconciled and redeemed to God. That's why we fear him. The gospel leads to a fear, a fear of God, recognizing his power to crush death in the death of his son, but a sovereign goodness that he has sent one to save. He's not going to give us an educational philosophy. He's not going to help us get the job done. He came and did the job himself for us. And that should lead us to fear. And the fear of God is used throughout Proverbs as motivation to walk in the wisdom we get. So it's not, hey, do this so you have a better life. No, do this because we ought to fear God. Because God is both powerful and good. Now what's interesting is Paul takes and combines these ideas in Titus. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. That's what we once were, passing our days in envy. Hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, that's a 15-course meal just in those verses. You can go back in Titus 3, um, 3 to 7. But what he's saying here is we are envious. We are haters. We are filled with malice. That's what we once were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. This is what generates a fear of God. Instead of envying the things of this world, the temporal distractions, Fear the one who saved you, who washed you clean, who has given his spirit, the spirit that brought order out of the chaos of creation, who's now bringing order to our lives as he conforms us to the image of Christ, that same spirit he's given to us with the hope of eternal life. How do those gifts compare to the things that we're longing for and feeling that we're insufficient when we lack them? But we have these things. So so you think when you... I think about Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven? What do I desire on earth? But you, 
I mean, God is our portion. God is our happiness. Fear in God will crush that tug of envy to the things of this world. The last thing I would say to you, this is just a free one, thrown in at the end, the Jinsu knife, is leverage your disappointment. You're going to struggle with disappointment. We all do. John Cheever, a novelist, said, the main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth and education and culture is disappointment. Henry David Thoreau said the same thing a couple hundred years ago. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. We just are always somehow discontent. And what I'm saying to you is leverage it. Use it. In other words, when you feel the tug of envy pull, remind yourself that those things that you're beginning to want, they're not going to satisfy you. Even the gifts of God that you want to populate your life to make it better, the gifts of God are reflections of God. They're not replacements of them. I mean, they're meant to arouse in you a hunger for God, not his gifts, but for God himself. Let the disappointment with your job or the discouragement with your body or the discontentment over your possessions, let those things arouse a greater desire in you for God himself. C.S. Lewis says, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, echo, or mirage. They're only a copy. The greatest gifts that you'll have, they're only a copy. They're a mirage. They're an echo of something far greater. You know, it's like loving the shadow, missing the substance. It doesn't make any sense. We need this contentment. There's a line out of Shadowlands, that movie about C.S. Lewis. Listen to how Lewis speaks about the contentment he found. He says, you know, I don't want to be somewhere else anymore. I'm not waiting for anything new to happen. I'm not looking around the next corner or over the next hill. I'm here now, and that's enough. That, that contentment. I have God. That's enough. That's enough for me. So, so, friends, don't give way to envy. Don't treat it like the lost sin. We're pursuing things to find satisfaction and happiness. And they will not provide what you need. They can't provide. God won't distract you from himself. You know, Tim Challies wrote this blog post a while back on why billionaires are investing. Many of these billionaires, like Jeff Bezos and others, are investing in these kind of life-extending technologies. And it's like, they got everything. I mean, they've got, they've got billions of dollars, anything the world has. They, why do they want to live? Why do they, what are they searching for? It could be a number of answers to it, but the answer he proposed is they're not satisfied. Everything that place has to give, I've had it, and I'm still hungry. So, so what do I do? I mean, what are you longing for right now? What do you see in others that you're most envy about? How long will it last? How long will it satisfy you? How long are you going to be content with that before it breaks down or you break down? I mean, we have God. You know, read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is really a personal testimony of a man who tried every path the world has to offer to find contentment. And here's what he says at the very end of chapter 12. 
the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's it. I mean, that's just it in a nutshell. So, so for, particularly for those of you who are not Christian here, you will be on a hamster wheel forever until you come. You know, Augustine says, my soul finds no rest until it finds rest in thee. That's where envy is crushed and rest is enjoyed. And for the Christian, remind yourself of this. Let's just take a few moments and ask God if he would just, by the power of his spirit, bring these truths to bear on our souls. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.